0: Welcome to the second episode of our new podcast. It's an irregular podcast from, as a friend of ours says, irregular Marxists. Prometheus um, is a new journal focused on finding a way forward for the left through open debate, re-examining our traditions and histories, and confronting capitalism as it exists today. My name is Chris Strafford and this episode was recorded two weeks ago uh, with comrades who are at the coalface um, of organizing during the Covid pandemic. I'm joined by my fellow editor, Jim Woods, who works tirelessly organising care workers across the Northwest and whose recent articles have looked at the strategic lessons from the teacher strike waves in the United States and organising under COVID. We're also joined by a stalwart of the Manchester left, Ali Treacher. She's a care worker for a national mental health service provider and organises with the new anti-capitalist resistance group. Her latest article in Spectre magazine provides valuable insights into the world of care under COVID, and I'll be linking all of the mentioned articles in the description. So we're gonna jump straight in uh, with Imogen, giving us an overview of where we are now.
1: Um, so, since the start of the pandemic, um, coronavirus has has really impacted people um, within care homes. So as an organizer, I was speaking to a lot of care workers across the sector, so that's, um, in residential kind of care work, within home care work and um, within supported living. So across the sector about how it was impacting people. Now at the start of the pandemic, the huge, huge issue was complete lack of PPE, which was uh, making a lot of workers really nervous. Um, These private providers were um, not supporting Work as a tool, or and government guidelines around um, around provision of PPE were really poor. It wasn't until May um, that they actually implemented, um, saying that people had to wear masks on shift. Um, so it's completely disastrous in, in terms of PPE. Uh, in, in addition to that, within residential care homes. There was a huge, huge crisis. Uh, so, in elderly care homes, where um, you've got, you know, multiple beds <coughs> in in quite short, short uh, enclosed spaces, um, and and COVID was just swamping swamping these residential homes, and there was numerous deaths. Um, actually, statistically, So, if you look at the statistics, nearly a third of COVID-related deaths in the early stages of the pandemic were actually related to to the crisis within care homes. Um, And actually like, through speaking to workers throughout this, what I could describe was actually a collective trauma um, from their experience of, of working during this pandemic, of seeing all these people that they really cared about, Um, who they'd been caring about for years, were dying. Um, You had hospital admissions that weren't being tested, being being brought into care homes, um, and and just absolutely, you know, very little accountability for for these private providers um, and, and what they were doing, you know, and the and the sort of safety and health and safety procedures that were in place. Um, now that kind of tailed off. Um, there was a lot better provision of, of PPE. Um, and you know, after a lot of, of sort of media attention um, and, and campaigning from, from care workers on the ground. So, so that did tail off, and there was there was less deaths and um and yeah, better health and safety procedures. But now what we're coming into is a second wave. Um, You know, and and we are seeing more infections in care homes, more outbreaks in care homes. Um, It's it's to a lesser degree, um, but it's still occurring. Cause actually eight out of 10 care workers don't get full sick pay, they're on statutory sick pay. Um, So they're on, you know, 90 pounds a week. Um, So if they have to self-isolate, if they have to take time off um, due to coronavirus because they've got symptoms or or have been in contact with it, people are literally choosing between eating and providing for themselves um, or, you know, or going into work. Or, you know, or potentially making people sick. So that's the decision that so many care workers are faced with um, because of this crisis. Now, there was an infection control fund um, that was announced by the government. Uh, It was £600 million and it was delegated to local councils to be distributed to to, to care homes to ensure that all care workers um, could get full sick pay. But the reality on the ground is so different. So you know councils have this money they may even be passing it on to these private providers but then the care workers they're not they're not seeing it um, and these private providers are, are you know pocketing the money basically. Um, it's the fundamental issue um, so I mean at the start of the pandemic, HC1, a massive provider, national provider um, that saw numerous outbreaks of of COVID in care homes was calling on the government for more funding. Um, So they received this funding, local councils received this funding, in Salford it definitely got passed on to HC1 and a HC1 care home literally refused um, to to pass that on to care workers. After a bit of campaigning and organizing from from workers on the ground, they eventually did concede and and they did pass that on. But that was only in an organized care home. What's to say, you know, in a care home in a a different council that that's going to happen? So this is this is really the crisis that we're seeing um, at the minute.
2: Yeah, I agree with everything that you've kind of said there, Imogen. Um, And from my experience, uh, even looking back to those times in March when PPE, you know, the battle for PPE and worrying about the the quality of the PPE we were receiving. So receiving um, masks which were four and a half years out of date, um, Having battles with management about how to don the PPE. There's advice about what you should be wearing, but actual physical uh, kind of e learning or training around how we should uh, don this PPE during the pandemic was absent. Fights around if we should be wearing visors or face protections and when that should um, come into play, but also knowing that. How, when are we going to get the next supply? You know that kind of anxiety of just is this is this a reliable source? Are the production lines uh, catering for the amount of need that we're going to need um, to make sure that if all our staff are protected and we are delivering the best practice? I think when you described it as a trauma, uh, we're still going through that trauma. I think as this collective uh, and with Johnson's uh, announcement yesterday, we're back into full lockdown. Straight away, my manager was on my WhatsApp, just like, what does this mean for us? How how can we improve? What are we doing? What's next? Um, And so the situation has changed. Uh, I work in mental health services, so I have a a different experience to those um, workers that you um, kind of organise in kind of care homes. We are a part of a, a system. And uh, social care was broken before the pandemic. It has never been up to scratch. It's never it's never fully wor- worked, you know, we've always been overstretched and under-resourced. And, and this is kind of playing out more and more. And we work in systems, you know, um, so social care, working with healthcare professionals, working with statutory services, working with community groups, All of these systems have been blown to pieces, basically. Um, And, you know, we're seeing real delays on state provision of care that we rely on. So for example, um, relying on ambulances, relying on, um, you know, other kind of statutory services to come in and kind of share that responsibility of maintaining good care and keeping people safe. Um, I I think I might talk about that a little bit later too, because, um, yeah, seeing one, seeing social care as um, atom, well, it has been atomized on purpose, but, you know, it's not, that's not how we work. We work in networks and with those being destroyed and eroded and uh, throughout the pandemic has been really problematic. and I suppose in, as, a, as a kind of personal experience of, you know, working through the pandemic, um, you know, a uh, there was a survey done by the Together office group last year, and it kind of highlighted that social care is the most stressful industry to work in. And that's before that there was even a pandemic. Last month, uh, over the pandemic from, you know, from the from March 30, 23rd, wasn't it, uh, until that, the end of July. I've done 120 hours overtime and that doesn't even include the hours that I'm physically in the building um, not being paid on sleep shifts. You, social care workers this has become our life you know the the private sphere and the you know and our work has just been completely merged and uh, it's it's really difficult to separate and i think that that's taking you know a toll uh, on the workforce and you know playing in and exacerbating that trauma of the fear of coronavirus coming into our buildings um and and us not being able to contain that uh, it's it's terrifying it has been terrifying and continues to be. So I, I'm i a member of a kind of general workers union and um, creating change and uh, redirecting those massive organisations are difficult anyway. Um, so I am pleased that there has been moves made so in Unite for example we've created a national social care forum which brings together workers across four different industrial sectors to come together in a forum to discuss you know similar struggles and and how we work together both industrially and politically to fight back that that's an important step um in such a big union that's over 20,000 workers um who would be involved in that I'm disappointed politically by some of the language used by all the big unions actually I think that social care has been reduced to a service provision and it hasn't adapted to what social care should be they're seeing it as a traditional workplace and they haven't Kind of considered the very different nature of work which care is. So I find a lot of the language used and the tone used um, and the reducing improved social care to better terms and conditions um, quite um, disheartening. Also the. The, the ignoring of the disabled people's movement who should be at the heart of this struggle because why Why do we do it if it isn't to support uh, people with access you know I don't think the unions have a hold of the social uh, model of disability and they are solely looking at Uh, an industrial strategy as opposed to a a political one. And we have got some, you know, we need to be having these political debates about what social care should look like. Um, And there's been many phases of social care. Saying that conversely, we have seen some incredible work from some of the smaller uh, non-TUC affiliated unions. So for example, uh, the United Voices of the World, They have at um, Sage uh, Nursing Home in London have just um, had a successful ballot back. A hundred percent of the workers voting for strike action. The women are mainly uh, migrant women and and they're taking on their employer. And I suppose what I would like to talk about further in discussion is about uh, forums for solidarity for those workers uh kind of cross-union work taking on those political ideas uh whilst encouraging you know industrial action like that
1: yeah i just want to pick up on the point about um encompassing demands around the rights of of people that are disabled within you know uh within organizing uh, within social care and and sort of encompassing um sort of wide demands around around the quality of, of social care uh, I think it's a really not only you know morally what what unions should be should be doing but also it's strategically useful um actually strategically integral to the success of improving uh, the conditions of social care because Firstly, how do you unionize a workforce that cares so deeply about the people that they're looking after um, without management saying, you, the, the classic tactic that, you, that, uh, that management are gonna use is, well, if you unionize and if you take action, you're impacting your service users. That's what they're going to come back with. That's what they're going to bust you with. And they'll hit you again and again with it. And it really works. It really taps into workers' consciousness. So how do you cut through that? Well, you make it not just about the workers' rights, but you make it about the service users' rights as well. And in addition to that, not only do you have the potential to get workers on board with issues around social care, but you also have the ability to get the community on board as well, which is a huge amount of leverage. Because when you're talking about public sector unionism, um, even though you know most of social care is privatised, um, you, your your point of leverage is is very political. You know, it is targeted at, at the council. Um, to to achieve change, Um, but maybe that's sort of a a point I can can extend on a little bit later. Uh, So getting on the community on board to to, to campaign um, and join forces with workers is gonna create a much stronger campaign that's actually going to achieve change. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, while improving you know you can make so, so much bigger demands um that are going to improve conditions for our class as a whole rather than rather than just the workers um which you know who doesn't want that uh, <laughs> that's
2: why we're here right <laughs> <laughs>
1: um you know th- and there's so many th- things within social care that that go beyond just workers wages or, or sick pay you know and I really think this this crisis has has brought how those demands kind of fit into each other really into light because the safety of of service users is also you know completely on par with the safety of of um of workers and and those two things need to be united to to create a camp you know organize mm. successfully. Mm.
2: I think it's really useful, like thinking of. About sick pay as a, as a public health issue, you know, um, and and bringing those arguments to the fore and um, highlighting if you have sick workers going in in a pandemic, then this this doesn't benefit anywhere. This is the super spreaders. This is how this this uh, virus will spread um, rapidly. So yeah, uniting uniting good care. With good terms and conditions um, is an impasse that we need to be exploring further and reiterating.
0: So, Ali, what what has it been like as someone who's been working on the front line uh, throughout the pandemic? Like, what what kind of con- what are the conditions that you're working under? Um, what has it been like for your co-workers? And uh, can you tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. So, I think stress and anxiety would be two of the words that I go to. Uh, It's been extremely difficult uh, with opaque kind of government guidelines and the responsibility that we deeply feel to make sure we're doing our best by implementing these kind of um, these guidelines. So ensuring that we have changed our practice to Ensure that the, the, you know, the the uh, physical side of the job, making, improving, like cleaning rotors um, and then looking at how do we offer support, which is within social distancing, within social distancing? Uh, and can we do that? And if we can't, how do we keep ourselves safe? So those, those questions have just been going round and round and round in our head, trying to keep both our colleagues safe, but also those who use our service safe. Um, The majority of my organisation are women, something like 76%. The workers, my colleagues are tired. Many come home to do a double shift. So after, you know, supporting people in the workplace, coming home to look after their kids, looking out for their neighbours and their elderly parents. So, you know, this is adding to like the the load that they're experiencing. Most of my colleagues are on minimum wage, uh, around £8.70 an hour. So there's obviously been a lot of stress around just surviving. I mean, this predates the pandemic, but also plays into, you know, people's worry. Also, I suppose there's a lot of emotional labour that goes on every day. So supporting people through a very difficult time where I think personally we're all struggling. So trying to remain congruent and realistic but hopeful whilst thinking, actually, you know, the house is burning down, we're all fucked, I don't know what's going on here. Um, And I can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. So... um, That's been difficult. That's been difficult. But also adapting the way that we care for people, using, trying to use new technologies, trying to, you know, make sure everyone's on WhatsApp or can see me via video phone. Um, And if I do have to go in to administer medication or any of those things, uh, getting through the barriers, the physical barriers of wearing a mask, which is uh, quite intimidating. And um, people, you know, and difficult it's difficult it's change change is difficult to regulate anyway and especially under such kind of harsh conditions so um yeah it's it's been really tough um but people are tired now and with another lockdown coming through like just being announced um i i i worried to see where we'll be in three months probably zombies
1: and i guess i, I want to add to that um by talking like I can't talk somebody that's worked within care but I, I guess I can speak from from my experience of speaking to, to a wide variety of people within care that kind of picks up on, on a couple of things that you said is like there's a real issue with people being able to take up take a break and take annual leave because there's huge staff shortages um and that's been a real problem, and people are really concerned that, you know, they've they've done a year. Well, what are we? Eight months into the pandemic, um, annual annual leave years are coming up, and people still haven't taken their annual leave. And you know, if anybody deserves a bloody break at the minute, it's it's the people on the front line. Um, I guess the other thing as well is transport to and from work has been a real concern for. some carers you know if they're traveling to a residential home as we've talked about before like carers you know you guys really care about the people that you work with you you know you don't want to bring something in and um, so people were taking taxis but they've been funding it themselves so you know if you live far away from your workplace you're only getting paid you know £8.70 an hour and and you're paying £40 a week on taxis just to get into work that's a huge chunk of money Mm -hmm. um some people possibly won't won't pay but but there are people going out of pocket but that choice isn't a that's a choice out of of financial difficulty because you know fundamentally care workers are just not paid enough for for the work that they do that um so yes you know it's presented presented all these issues and as we talked about it's like a you know a merger like a kind of I don't know of just this bubble bursting that's been building for for years and years um you know this crisis that's kind of finally come into public consciousness but for people that work in the sector you know they've known that this, this is a this was a disaster waiting to happen um because of its privatized nature because it's become atomized, because it's fragmented, um, and because there's so little accountability um for, for the people for the companies providing it.
0: Um I mean you, you can see the strain across the whole the whole system, the whole health system, can't you? I mean, me and Ali were, were talking the other day about waiting for ambulances. Um for, you know, for 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 me it was for a student at, at college who who had hurt themselves and needed, um, you know, to be taken to hospital. And for Ali, it was her, her, her patients and um, people that she works with, um, you know, waiting four, five, six hours, you know. And you say that obviously that care workers and healthcare workers are really at breaking point now. You know, they're already, you know, in dire straits every winter anyway. But then not having that annual leave, not you know, having those two weeks in Magaluf or whatever, you know, is, is is important, isn't it? Like, you know, not being able to go and see your family or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, is, is really important things for healthcare workers. And um, you know, it seems to me that you know, lots of healthcare workers are off with stress or are ill themselves through through whatever. You know, I know from people at work, there is um, you know, a lot of our teachers are you know, are unwell or. You know, really stressed out and what have you, and God knows what's the the next few months are going to bring in terms of, you know, the people's capacity to work through it. Um, I can see the Belgians are forcing their their doctors and nurses to work even when they're ill with COVID at the moment because they've really they really messed up their response as well.
2: Yeah, I I mean I think. We are pushing to, you know, that uh, to the extremes of what workers can cope with. So, you know, around the ambulances, I was waiting for seven hours with a woman who was completely dissociated um, and suicidal. And because she was still breathing, you know, the ambulance is just not coming. And that coincided with, you know, our understanding of how, you know, we're now soon to be in lockdown again. Uh, So we saw how um, hospitals are at capacity already Um, and that experience of holding that woman like, and soothing her and bit for seven hours. And finally I convinced her to present at A&E voluntarily, something that she'd never done before. But, you know, that whole experience is traumatic for her, but also for me, because I also worry just what what happens with the next person? What happens if I can't soothe that person? Um, Because nobody's coming. And that is uh, something really deep that you have to sit with which is you know what stems from the anxiety really cool yeah on a happy
0: note
2: <laughs> um... <laughs> but this is yeah these are the stories that we're not hearing you know mm. these are the, the you know we're here because covid is obviously uh, consuming all our public services other people's distress has just been sidelined um, and with no support. And and what that ha- what happens then is all that responsibility and accountability gets pushed down. And who's at the bottom? Social care workers, <laughs> um, you know, uh, trying just to be the plug to the gaps of the gaping holes in you know in service provision after years of austerity.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think also, you know, years of, of the fragmentation of of the workforce and and yeah, it just become yeah, becoming completely atomized and, and there being sort of very little lineage between who's commissioning things and um, and who's providing it. And you know, I mean so there's the body of called the CQC that that's meant to um sort of intervene in care homes if, if people aren't getting correct care and and you know ensure that there's, there's a quality of care there but you know the things that get reported to the CQC and then and then nothing's done about it I mean it's horrendous um, and then you've got councils commissioning services so paying for services uh, pay, paying for for care work t- to be done uh, within that council but the connection between the council and, and that provider is is so weak that you, you, you so um you know as coming back to being paid sick pay um, councils are paying providers to pay workers sick pay and then workers aren't receiving it. And it's, it's just absolutely insane. Um, but then you've got these providers that are making huge, huge profits and have tax havens in Gibraltar. Um, so not only is, is the system become privatized, it's it's become commodified um it's a cash cow so you know for instance in in liverpool there's a there's a care home there's a provider uh, they've got a nice cushy name called liverpool home carers limited so they sound all family run and local and lovely Um, and you actually do a little bit of digging on them and they are a multinational company. They're a Spanish company. They've got investments in construction. Um, they have shares in like Madrid Stadium or something, and they made like oh, I don't know the like one point three billion pounds profit last year. Um, hmm. It's
2: not a drop in the ocean, is it? No. <laughs>
0: And these people can't provide proper PPE, can't provide sick pay. And I think like, this is one of the things that I think annoys me the most about the, not annoys me, but I'm critical of in terms of the the left's narrative of the whole thing, as if it was only the government, you know, that is to fault. And I mean, they, they are to fault for, for a great deal of things. But, you know, the these privatised, you know, these private companies providing care, are, you know, well, why didn't they have proper contingency plans? Why didn't they have um, the PPE stocked? Why are they expecting their workers to come in when they're sick anyway? You know, why are they staffed to a point that is like the very bare minimum? So, if one person's off, obviously it's absolute catastrophe. You know, what kind of service are they providing to you know elderly people, to sick people, to you know adults who who need support? You know, um, whatever. Um, you know that that's the discussion that we really need to be having. Why is the social, privatized social care system so, so fucked? Really, so so outrageously run, um, and it just falls off the map. And I think, you know, it's obviously important to hold the Tories and you know to account and what have you. But you know, we really need to focus our fire at the the, the these managers, these the owners of these private companies, who, as you say. You know, have shares in Real Madrid but can't provide sick pay for for their workers you know this is a madness really isn't it
1: I think just to it's really difficult though because obviously these these huge providers you know we, we want to hold them accountable but it's really difficult because they're really powerful uh, and and how do how do you build enough power to, to hold these people accountable because quite frankly, they don't give a shit. Um, they're, they're incredibly profit, they're profit motivated. That's it. comes down to the bottom line. Um, so yeah. Yeah. How do, how do we hold those, those people accountable?
2: Yeah. Uh, I, because I don't want to let the government completely off the hook And I think our anger has to be focused in two directions, both at the government and the providers at the same time. And that's why, you know, a political response and a systemic change in the way that services are provided is has to be one of our main demands, because as we're seeing money is just being uh, siphoned off by you know unscrupulous employers who do not care about care they care about you know their bank accounts
0: i think this leads on quite well to as you say like obviously burn down the whole fucking system and start again it'd be you know what what is the what is the the alternative that we that we've got um which I guess is a is a really hard question, isn't it? Um, you know, there are immediate things that should be done. I guess that we can talk about now, and then obviously we can then lead on to the to the longer term view of care in in, in, in society. Um, um. So
1: I think this is really hard to talk about because it's our political situation is is so dire. We've got a. Keir Starmer, a Labour leader, the a bit of a wet blanket, if you ask me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's, it's quite hard to imagine, you know, some sort of more fundamental or, or dramatic changes within social care. Um, you know, I mean, there's been huge talk about a national care service. Um, and bringing it back into to local authority control, I think absolutely um, that would be fantastic to have more sort of democracy um, and ownership over over how that work is is done, and um, yeah, sort of more accountability. But I also really don't think it's the absolute solution to to changing social care because there's still you know huge huge problems with that um i think but you know if it was under local authority control wages would be a lot better and and money wouldn't being siphoned off to private companies um People would get proper sick pay, you know, there'd be sort of more direct lines to, to provide PPE um, in, in cases like that. I mean, it's not the be, you know, be all and end all local authorities aren't, aren't all perfect, um, but it's remarkably better than, than a commodified you know, private sector model of, of social care. In terms of imagining the future of social care, it really does have to come down to, to workers having more ownership over their work. Um, so when I go and, and speak to workers, some um, you know, particularly across supported living and, and home care, which is the majority of, of the work that I've been, been doing over the past two years. Um What I come back to and again and again and again is like these people know their service users so much better than than anybody, you know, in an office. You know, they know their service users needs um, and they know how to organise their work um, and and their care plans and, you know, and, and so forth, so on and so forth workers need more ability to, to sort of do, do their work and, and have, you know, ownership over, over what that means. So there's some really interesting models um, that have been trialled in the Netherlands where workers um, have been, like, allocated into groups. They don't have managers. They ha- they get allocated a certain amount of service users. This is, this is in home care, so from going from house to house um, and, and doing visits. Um, so they don't have managers, they're, they're, they've got a group of service users and they kind of like divvy up the work among themselves. Um, they've got regular service users. Um, they know that the how, how to you know, provide good care, care for that service user and they can also do additional, work around providing well-being for, for that, that person rather than just like going in giving them their tablets feeding them and then you know on my way I've only got 15 minutes to the call and I've got to go to the next one so that's a much better way of sort of doing care and it's sort of like an alternative model now in the Netherlands that was done as a cost saving measure they actually found out it was cheaper to do it that way than it was to do it um, in, in the model that we have in, in the UK, which is, you know, you have a private firm, they're siphoning off loads of money um, and, you know, people are doing 15-minute visits to, to each of these houses. And then also that person goes, the person that they're looking after is more likely to get sick because they're not being cared for properly and, you know, they have to go, there's more hospital admissions because of that. Um so it's an interesting model, um, but I think there are limitations around that um, because it is, yeah, it's, it's motivated by by cost saving. Um, but I'd be interested to to yeah to hear what you think,
2: Callie. Yeah. So I also think it's a different, a difficult question to answer and I suppose to start to answer it we need to acknowledge the route in which care provision has been developed under capitalism and then have a sober analysis of the extent to which neoliberalism and capitalism has moved away from what we understand by caring for each other as opposed to care work. Has moved from being kind of obscured and invisible in the private sphere to widespread provision by the state, and now we're seeing it fragmented and witnessing the wholesale uh, of service provision off to you know the private sector just to extract profit. We've seen the inevitable, inevitably, we've seen the crushing of terms and conditions for workers in the pursuit of profit but the neoliberalization of care doesn't end there it's more insidious than that and it kind of leaches into the processes and the practices which are all compounded by a new language in care as well uh, neoliberalism has obviously led to the commodification of care which is based on outcomes and targets as opposed to meaningful co-production and support Alongside this, we've uh, witnessed mass de-skilling of the workforce, reducing care to mechanical rigid rigid tasks and demeaning the labor workforce. Socialism would allow workers agency and value their skills and knowledge, enabling them to create more supportive, uh, meaningful relationships, embracing community whilst advocating and ensuring uh, inclusion and opportunity. just a kind of practical example of that, I was in a capability stage two meeting last week, which kind of illustrated the extent of micromanaging and de-skilling within my own organisation. Uh, we were presented with a long list of menial tasks, um, which had been brought to the, the table um, Documents saved in the wrong place of the database, uh, management acknowledging that the work was being completed, but scathing because it wouldn't register on their printed reports for commissioners. Um, And as I was in this meeting, I was thinking, you know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. We're adapting to new ways of support to ensure everyone's as well as they can be um, throughout this uh, nightmare. Uh, And this is the focus. Um, This is what CARES become. Uh, And I suppose this isn't exclusive to care, but also examples can be found in, you know, IAPT and provision of psychological therapies or education all gendered work of social reproduction Um, and also all these themes are kind of compounded by the language we've adopted in care. So assets and deficit-based care, risk management, community capacity, outcomes based on qualitative data, uh, quantitative data, as opposed to the experience of support and how the people we support, you know, how do they feel about those trusting relationships that we've made? None of that is acknowledged All of that is, uh, you know, remains invisible. Um, And this is the extent of how neoliberalism has kind of um, leached into everything um, that we do. So... I think it's important that we recognize that neoliberalism is not just an economic economic system of financialized capitalism but it's also a form uh, of reason that makes uh, that remix everything in the image of the market uh, and this runs very very deep or to the core of our provision of social care so tackling merely I say merely the the financialized capitalist side of private provision doesn't go deep enough because this is so ingrained in the way that we view support.
1: And I think it's also a question of time. People don't have the time to care for people anymore. You know, if you take social care to encompass child care as well, um, you know, all types of care, People are working too much. I mean, maybe you know, the past eight months have been a little bit of a break for some people. Not you know, um, but just the ridiculous amount of work that people do mean that they can't look after the elderly or their kids or or um, and then it means that not only is is care. Being outsourced from the local authority, but it's it's being outsourced from from the family, or you know, and that, I think it's easy to talk about that. Like that creates a lot of difficulty because, you know, in terms of gender politics, should we be talking about care returning to the family? That creates problems, um, and I don't know if I've got the answer to that. But this situation where it's being care is being provided by low-wage workers in in poor working conditions, that's not the answer either. Um,
2: Absolutely. Um, I completely agree. And I suppose it's really difficult to envision what care looks like under a kind of classless society. Um, it's... Uh, But I think that, you know, to envision this, you know, how we get there is a very meaningful part of like forming that process, uh, if that kind of makes sense. Um, I've heard it described, care, you know, described as, you know, it could look like an ecosystem um, as opposed to a service which is done for you. Something that evolves and is kind of localized which understands the connections between us um, but also is nurtured by a kind of collectivized environment. Um, So good housing provision, good access to green spaces, um, community space so much could come into that Um, and I think to envision something better we do need to concentrate and it would be well it'd be an own goal if you know we got lost in a kind of utopian idea of what care looks like under communism but we also need to be finding tangible demands uh in and a lot of them being social democratic demands so you know it should be publicly provided removing the profit motive it should be we should receive decent pay and annual leave Um, democracy uh, with true co-production at its core these are all things that are you know in the demands for the national care support and independent living service Uh, which is being championed by, you know, the national um, Keep Our NHS Public, the Socialist Health Organisation and Reclaim Social Care. They've all come together to kind of fit those demands in. And I think, you know, we need to really grapple with those um, demands and make sure that, you know, we're starting moving towards um, a different way of providing services, but also, doing this whilst exploring alternative models of organisation. So a massive loss from the 70s, 80s was the disabled people's movement organisations. You know, organisations funded by the council, supported by the council, but run by disabled people. You know, they have been obliterated, um, you know, concentrating on getting organisations like that back, but also exploring the relationship between care and mutual aid Networks and you know could a cooperative of care addressing that power balance be uh, an important or new way to move forward? And there should be kind of lessons learned almost by trying different forms of organisation as opposed to nationalised a lot. Hurrah! We've got socialism.
1: And I think there are there is some headway. Um talking about sort of alternative models of ownership, um, for social care. Um, so, you know, post post Corbyn, that was a big, big conversation um, about, yeah, organizing, yeah, alternative models of ownership that aren't just straight up local authority. Um, and that's kind of, so there was a report recently in, in Merseyside by a group of sort of backbench socialist councillors um, that were sort of, you know, wrestling with this idea about sort of trying out different different models of ownership um, so workers have, have more control over over the work that they do. Mm. So it's not, you know, a completely impossible prospect.
2: It's not impossible, but potentially at odds with what the labour movement are calling for. So, you know, with a national care service, um, you know, workers are in one place, easy to unionise, easy to, you know, ensure collective bargaining and recognition. And that would be good. But is it enough? And are we going to? You know, we need people who are thinking this through in our unions, advocating for our class as a whole, as opposed to just the workforce, because it's not enough. And we we, we need a wider understanding.
0: I mean, I'm sure the the leaders of the trade unions are definitely very happy for that. You know, a contained membership in a nationalised. Uh, you know, workforce, all those subs, perfect, perfect, absolutely perfect. You know, you don't even have to hand any democracy over to to your members or the workers there. Perfect plan. Um, I wonder if um, you know. We, I think. I think. I think we've we've spoken about the the Lucas plan um, a few times, haven't we? Um, I think. Why is there not a Lucas plan for care? Why aren't workers and worker militants, worker leaders, whatever you want to. Say, um, working on a plan for themselves. Why is there, it has to be an alternative? Why is it, why does Dave Prentice have to come up with this plan? You know, why do, you know, the, the Labour Party have to come up with this plan? You know, it's always directed at the state, always directed at like, you know, keeping everything, you know, as a service for people as opposed to a system, as you say, like, you know, co co-production or co-ownership um you know working together democratically to provide this i think like one thing that you should come out of the whole pandemic is that you know the workers in in care are ignored i mean they're clapped week in week out for a few months and then what nothing i didn't get a say into how their workplaces are run you know and as you know imogen you, you said earlier like you know they are the best people to know how to run those workplaces um so why isn't there a Lucas plan for for care? Why is it just a national care service?
2: And I think it's really important to notice there that y- you mentioned those workplaces. You know, care should extend beyond that. And so who's around that table around that diversification is going to be really important. So that has to be people who use services or require support the people who they love, um, the people who work in the workforce, and that's a lot of people around the table. And I do think that we need to kind of broaden um, who's around the table kind of making those plans uh, and include disabled people, uh, what they need to be at the heart of it. Um, I think that's really important. But also it shows you the scope of social care because it will affect all of us at some point, at some point in our lives, either ourselves or someone we love are gonna have to rely on this service. And one thing that I've noticed about organizing in social care um, is I'm always the youngest in the room and I am not young. (laughs) Uh, This has almost been a uh, area of struggle, which has been, that's for old people, you go do that now, you know, as opposed to, you know, actually this is our future and we need youthful, uh, radical perspectives and a lot more thinking through about what it looks like and young people uh, or everyone needs to be involved in that conversation because it's something we all need.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I think, you know, if we look at some of the, the best organizing that's happened you know in the in the past 10 years um it's been about common demands um if we look at the teacher strike wave in america and and how they've managed to so so in America in 2018-2019 in there was a strike wave um, across multiple states and the demands were not just around wages and material conditions but it was also around getting smaller class sizes, um, getting more nurses uh, within schools, green spaces, um, you know, better housing within those cities and they managed to mobilise workers to 100% all-out illegal strike, Um, which is just like mind-blowingly incredible in a state where the labour movement is kind of on its arse and has been for a while. You know if they can manage that with these big ambitious common good demands which unite service users and 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 workers interests then yeah we, we absolutely should be um should be using that strategy w- when organizing. Mm.
2: I absolutely agree. And kind of following from kind of Chris's comment around, well, why aren't workers kind of in care creating, you know, this, this Lucas plan? Um, And I think it's because, and it became very evident to me very quickly during the pandemic, is that there is no kind of forum for that to happen. We know that care is atomized and fragmented. We know that, workers often see their union as a service provider or insurance as opposed to uh, a place of political struggle. And the one good thing or the kind of one strategy which I think is beginning to work, which I've been working on throughout the pandemic, pandemic is forming a network of, care workers which is across union and also including quite a few uh, trade union militants. So we've created the Care Workers Coronavirus Action Group uh, which is only around 60 uh, care workers across the country coming together originally for solidarity but also to raise awareness and to start taking on some of these political kind of discussions. And there's been some gains, there's been some tangible gains. So, for example, I put on a Zoom meeting with the support of Manchester Trades Council towards the start of the pandemic around uh, the Infectious Infection Control Fund. And a woman from London turned up on the call and just said, you know, oh, well, I, I saw this advertised. This is exactly what we need to be speaking about. At the time, uh, she was a care home worker, uh, a care worker, a home care worker in London. And, um, and at the time, she wasn't a part of the union, but now she's joined Unison and she's got two of her colleagues to join Unison and they're beginning to take on their employer. And I was really heartened to see, her name's Nadelle, and I was really heartened to see that she'd written an um, article in the New Statesman. And it was brilliant and really discussing her struggle. So, you know, these networks of solidarity raise us up and, and widen the conversation and before the pandemic there was nothing and now at least I feel that I have a space to organize with people in different unions and you'd be surprised how much we have in common and that's that's the kind of scary thing and that's a real potential for power for me. Um, Another example of just The work and where that forum is going is we've been in contact with the Sage nursing home care workers for the United Voices of the World. So there's trade unionists from Unison, GMB, Unite. And united voices of the world all coming together to say how can we support each other how can this struggle is your struggle i mean in london they're fighting for 12 pounds an hour and parity of terms and conditions with nhs workers including annual leave and sick pay which are huge demands you know this isn't talking about backdated holiday pay this is you know the the, the, the leaps that we need to see in the sector And they shouldn't be isolated in one of the newer kind of not as rich, uh, less embedded in the wider Labour movement. They shouldn't be isolated in unions like that. We need forums in which we can support each other and offer practical solidarity, but also unite struggle saying your fight is my fight because they're fighting for me really uh, as well, which is um, which I think is a common thread in that that group.
0: Yeah. big themes yeah it is I mean the National Care Service would be a fucking godsend if they even did it you know Boris Johnson came to power saying I've got a plan National <laughs> Care Service we had nothing since have we So no. I
2: remember
0: Burnham when he was Health Secretary in, uh, in the run up to the 2010 election he was saying we're going to have a National Care Service well like 10 years later and
2: no we, national. Care we
0: did have a national care service. Things might be a bit easier right now, you know, in terms of... It's, uh...
2: Yeah, I mean, it's the unsolved public health policy of, like, <laughs> yeah, the not-just-one-decade, which is scary. It just... Because it's so big, because it's yep. so broken, it just gets pushed and pushed down the line, and... Um, And it almost feels like we're kind of at the end of that line.
0: Yeah, it does. Yeah, I agree. Yeah.
2: Have you seen the um, demands around um, the national support and care, the national care, support and independent living service?
0: No, can you send it through to us? And I'll attach it to the description as well. And then um, that way we can, well, I'll have a read of it as well. Just out of interest. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of debate and we have to kind of just recognize some of the strength of the disabled activists just saying, this is not good enough. Uh, and finally they kind of conceded and, you know, put uh, one of the demands being a service user led kind of overseeing group, you know, because they were completely cut out of it. And it was really kind of almost patronizing in the fact that it, it, referred to um loved ones and friends as carers Mm. um and it really was yeah quite patronizing but there's been some really good interventions and watching you know that struggle play out has been i'm glad to see it shifted um and consensus has been raised um concerns are still being raised but Mm. at least consensus a forged a fudged consensus <laughs> yeah. like, like most things like this being yeah
0: like everything so, <laughs> yeah would um, yeah, be interested to see what happens over the next few months because um, you know a lot of people were also kicking off that they couldn't see family and what have you absolutely you know, a friend of a friend uh, her mother was late stage dementia and she was dying and um, she couldn't go and see her in the care home in the weeks leading up to her death. Really horrible, you know, and it's clear, I mean, that's at the discretion of the care provider, right? So they could have said, put her in a secure place. You know, the family could have come in, touched nothing else, straight into that room, you know, saw her, did all the usual stuff that obviously happens in that, in those moments. And you think, you know, you've, miss the humanity the human side of all this as well you know absolutely
2: but a very similar thing around um some of the lads that I work with are fathers and their kids can't see them they can't come into the project to you know spend time with them and that's their home where else are they going to do that? Mm. At McDonald's, you know, <laughs> and, and it's just constant and there's a risk in the community as well. So, yeah, I don't think that, you know, especially the larger care homes um, have, you know, invested enough um, time, energy and money into making sure that those family networks aren't completely severed. Um, because they're so important, and that's what keeps us all well. It's kind of coming back to what what is care actually about. Mm. Um, But uh, another thing that I kind of wanted to raise about what does care look like under socialism or, you know, what should care look like? And I think that as the left, we need to be very mindful of not arguing for broken systems so for example oh well you know care homes are we need more better funding in care homes well actually we need care homes not to exist of course we need a place of respite and care but we look at the pandemic we look at the coronavirus and where it spreads and the majority of it spreads um in large care homes where the staff are poorly treated why are we defending systems like that we need to be making uh you know a kind of um a more um bold argument to say you know warehousing disabled and old people is not okay this warehousing has got to stop and we should and communal living should definitely be on the the agenda you know we all like to live around people but like give options you know, this shouldn't be the only option, and I think it's very difficult for care workers who work so hard under such strain to make that leap. And I found that because people, because they work so hard, are very protective of what they do, and it's harder to see a wider, uh, a bigger, a bigger picture. And we need to see that bigger picture.
0: Um. Well, yeah, it's like. Saying to uh, a Docker 40 years ago, this containerization thing is a bit better than uh, what you've been doing for the last 100, 200, 300 years. You know, uh, maybe we'll go with that. You know, these are these are arguments that extend beyond the trade unions, don't they? they the trade unions are fearful of making. You know that you not only is it, you know, that we need to get things in order very quickly on some on, on immediate levels. You know, on PPE on funding on wages and what have you, but you know, there's the way we organize our lives, our whole society, you know, we you know, we hive off vast numbers of people to be, as you say, warehoused. And, you know, there's a problem, isn't it, when it comes to the pandemic, you know, you've 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 put granny in a warehouse basically, but then you can't go see her anyway. You know, so you you you're even more you're even more like you're even more removing that human well, with basic humanity, aren't you? There's, you know, you're isolating them even more, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, this, is no, this is also then obviously brings up, as Imogen said earlier, like, and we have a bit of a conflict then, don't we, about the role of the family and what would the family look like in the future? You know, uh, what, what's the role of the family in care? Um, and then we were on to very, very difficult discussions then of, you know, gendered work and, you um, you know, raising all of that with, with care workers is obviously, well, with any worker, with anyone, is a, is, a whole, is, a, is a whole, is a massive, isn't it? I mean, it's not an easy, not easily done. Well, I mean, warehousing people off is, you know, removing them from society, basically. You know, you see the right constantly in the papers at the moment. Well, it's perfectly fine. 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 20-year-olds, they're perfectly fine. Just make sure that anyone above 50 or is, um, is a bit unwell or got a long-term condition they have to isolate they're the ones that are going to be locked out of society you know mm. put them on zoom quizzes or whatever you know a um, really anti-human anti-social kind of approach to the way we treat the sick and people in need people um, with different um, abilities and disabilities and what have you
2: mm. um, yeah because it's not just elderly people who are being warehoused, it's because there's no other alternative. We're seeing young people with learning disabilities being, and we've seen the horrors at Walton Hall, the abuses that go on. And when people, you know, actual real co-production between those requiring services and workers and that mutual respect that will lead to an end or diminishing of abuse within the care homes, uh, care homes again. Um, But I think it's really important to recognise there's a lot of young people in services that are not fit for them. And it's already said, like, you're in there, mate, let's close the door and forget that you have your own dreams, your own purpose, things to contribute. And it's deeply depressing.
0: I remember a friend of mine who was... um coming up to his renewal of his um, what must be called a personal care plan or whatever, PIP or whatever it is now. And um, one year, the, the person doing that um, assessment was like, well, why don't you go to bed at eight o'clock? then you won't need uh, someone sleeping over, you know, a care worker sleeping over. And, you know, he's a man in his in his 30s who, you know, likes to watch news night, you know, likes to go to the cinema, likes to go out, you know, as you know, everybody else, you know, has... Things that they want to engage and are engaged in you know cultural and modern life basically and the, re- the bureaucratic response is go to bed at eight o'clock you know and this is a grown man and you think if that, if that happens once twice who how many times is this happening to people and um, if they're not feisty enough or don't have people around them to to push back and is this what we're doing to adults who, who need that support are we saying so yeah, you did want to go and see that movie that starts at quarter past eight, but better go to bed at eight because can't afford the care worker to sleep over.
2: Another kind of piece of you know um, the funding of care that we've kind of like haven't spoken about is around um, people's personal or individual personal budgets, which of it ve- is very popular with um, disabled people because it gives them the autonomy to create a package which is in the community, which is in their own homes, which extends further than, you know, the local uh, adult education centre, which does English and maths, you know, maybe they want to do horticulture or ancient history, who knows, but them having those funds directly uh, opens up so many more channels, but at the same time is, leads to really precarious work um, and really atomized work, which doesn't allow for any kind of collective uh, challenge to, uh, or mechanism to challenge terms and conditions. So, you know, there's over 450,000 personal assistants out there who are de- directly employed by disabled people. How do we unionise those people? And also, you know, it has, what uh, Imogen was saying about um, uh, public sector unions, who are you fighting against? You know, <laughs> um, because the, well, we need to be advocating more for autonomy and power for disabled people, but also a long time good jobs. So uh, even though this like real neoliberal response to, well, I'll give you this, you personally, this amount of money uh, has impacts on the other side of the class or like, you know, the the worker. Um, And there's got to be a different way of doing it whilst holding uh, that autonomy and that um, direction of care uh, for the disabled person
1: um, together, So um, I think something really difficult, there are several things that are difficult about organising within social care. I think firstly, it's really fragmented. Uh, You've got a lot of different small workplaces with small amounts of staff. So building power quickly it's just incredibly difficult if you could go into a hospital you can create this kind of sense of of collectivity and power and strength and you know you you harness that and then you target target the the boss or 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 whatever and you know you can you can kind of switch around that workplace because it's it's just so big and there's so many connections between people um when you go into social care you've got small clusters very small clusters of workers so to organize successfully among them it takes a lot of time because that's a lot of conversations to have like you know and then you take you bring that into account and then you take on top of the fact like who do you target do you target the national government? Do you target the local for it? Or do you target the company or all three of them? Um, that creates huge issues. So if you wanna target commissioners, some of the structures of how you target those people are incredibly opaque. Uh, you don't know who these, these people are. Um, because sometimes You know, they're not only that; they can be joint commissioned between a local authority and also the NHS. So it's just like some some NHS board who you know don't have sort of political accountability. Then you're targeting a company that's a multinational that you know only cares about the bottom line. So, for example, there was an organising campaign against Bupa. in in the Northwest a couple of years ago. And what Bupa did is, sort of union busting, they just left, they just left the Northwest and they went and found business elsewhere because it was easier than dealing with a unionized workforce. Um, So so there's that issue. Um, And then I think, so yeah, targeting, is is a massive problem, um, and I think there's also a question around expectations of care workers. We're in a period of incredibly, like, low class consciousness, um, but also you're organising women that have been in this job for, you know, 15 years, and to pose the question, if you could imagine the social care. If you could wave a magic wand and you could imagine social care differently, how would you see it run? Um, the answer that, to that question is getting paid on time, or you know, maybe a little bit of sick pay. It's not you know huge demands because that there's not that expectation. So a lot of the work of organising is raising that and saying, well, actually, what we can demand is so much more because collectively. You know you guys have have a lot of power um so yeah organizing in, in social care absolutely necessary um and i think with a with a strategy that we've spoken about which encompasses um both both provider uh, service users and and workers you know we could make huge headway um but but it, it, it does have a lot of barriers, and it. it is incredibly difficult.
2: Yeah, to follow on from that, just quickly, um, I completely hear what Imogen's saying about around class consciousness in care workers, um, and I think this is kind of for many different reasons, really, you know, there isn't a historic Uh, militancy within social care especially as it's been smashed and outside of um, the public sector now you know in kind of uh, more organized workplaces but a lot of the times during the pandemic where I have raised terms and conditions to um, other care workers in different workplaces you know they've come back at me really quite reactionary, uh, saying, you know, oh, you're a bad carer. I can't believe that you're bringing this up in, you know, at a time like this, kind of saying that uh, we do our job for moral reasons and to fight for economic better better terms and conditions. Those two things are kind of counterposed. And I don't, and I, I think that maybe it is because of, um, you know, these arguments that kind of um, mimic the lessons of women's socialisation, that, you know, we do this because we care. We, uh, we're we not in this for the money. You know, if I had a pound for every time I'd heard those, you know, turns of phrase and being constantly reinforced by our organisations, but also society. So uh, that is a challenge to um to change that emotion from you know uh that all that subserviency or passivity into the anger and into organization and I think that's going to be one of our main challenges to find new ways of communicating that because sometimes I don't feel like I do that very well. (laughs) It's very easy to get angry of, you know, and and we're seeing this with the um, uh, United Voices of the World workers. You know, when I'm putting that kind of materials out into the care forums, they're just like, well, we support the goals, but they can't withdraw their labour. You know, that is not what carers do. And so, you know, really working around um, and, and highlighting the the decaying system. And by the only way that we will change this is through militant class action. Um, you know, uh, trying to explain that and keep that narrative at the fore is going to be a challenge. Cool.
0: I'm I mean, done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I learned a lot from both of you throughout the discussion. So it's been really, I think it's a really valuable discussion. There's so many more things to, to talk about, but we really can't be here another hour <laughs> so because um, <laughs> I'm I am starving <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and, your, and your freezer stuff is probably melted already so <sighs>
2: um, yeah can I yeah also just can I say to both of you like like good we need to keep banging this drum and there's so m- much more to kind of think about and um, I'm really pleased that Prometheus are picking this up because um, I've seen a couple of bits on like Navara media, but it's just not as sexy as, you know, stopping evictions or whatever, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and it's, it's kind of falling behind the, like, you know, off the agenda. And like when I saw the questions, I was just like, no, this is exactly what we need to be talking about. It's so nice to see that other people are on the same kind of thread. Um, so I really appreciate the invite. Definitely. Yeah.
1: No. But also, oh yeah. Might not be as sexy as evictions, but just like so incredibly important. Mm. And like so important for feminists as well. Yeah. Like why why isn't this like a huge feminist campaign?
2: You know, moving forward, like, you know, this should be at the the fore of the women's strike, you know? Um, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, come march next year like we should be organizing around that because we need different ways to kind of break these these arguments into different forums because that yeah
0: it is completely mad that the the women's strike is or like you know the 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 radical women's movement is nowhere to be seen on this i mean
1: it's really hard (laughs) yeah yeah so standing outside care homes at eight in the morning in the rain kind of thing you know that's that's what it involves and yeah
2: well, yeah and I feel like I've just been banging on about this for years and like not getting anywhere so any kind of new kind of for like new arena I think it's really yeah it's just really important